And the conversation on race is, is one that needs to have all the parties in the room. I think uh, the fear, again, is uh, I don't want to say something that's offensive. Um, and we don't, we don't make room for each other to do that. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Adam Foss is a juvenile justice reformer and a former assistant district attorney in Boston. Every day, he sees how race impacts lives. In today's show, he's part of a discussion about the future dialogue on race. Aspen Ideas to Go is a weekly show that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Since he started working in Boston, Adam Foss has noticed how being an African-American affects his life. In the show, he explains how the color of his skin led to him getting arrested the night before a job interview, and how his dreadlocks became a problem in the workplace. Foss spoke on a panel at the Aspen Institute's State of Race Symposium in early April. Joining him are Muslim-American attorney Kizer Khan, Amy Inahosa, who runs the national Latina organization MANA, and former NPR host Michelle Norris. Norris now directs the Aspen Institute's program on race and cultural identity. Norris leads a discussion about how we talk about race, what we talk about, what we avoid, and what the tone is like around conversations on race. Here's Norris. So I want you to introduce yourself and tell us who you are and what you do quickly, just your title. But then the third thing I want to hear from you is how you describe yourself at the core of your identity. So I am, and I want you to think about how you would answer that. So my name is Michelle Norris. I am the founding director of the Race Guard Project. I am the executive director of a new program at the Aspen Institute called The Bridge. I am a longtime journalist. And then it gets really deep. Okay, so what's the core of my identity? I'm an African-American woman. I'm a mother. I'm a wife. But you only get, I would say six words, but I'm going to give you a little bit more than that. You get only one sentence in that last part to tell us what is at the core of your identity. And I want you all to think about this because the answer to that last part of the question informs how we create bridges to each other and how we understand each other. Very good. Um, my name is Amy Nahosa. I am the president and CEO of MANA, a national Latina organization. We're the oldest and largest Hispanic women's organization in the country. And to answer your question, this is actually an interesting one for me. I am Latina, Mexican-American, third generation Mexican-American in the United States. On my father's side, on my mother's side, I am Cajun from Louisiana. Um, and I am also a Texan, so Southern on top of all that identity. And you know how she managed to do that in one sentence with a few hyphens and parentheticals <laughs> and made it all work? Adam. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Adam Foss. I'm a former prosecutor, and now I'm the president of an organization called Prosecutor Impact. Um, I am an orphaned immigrant who uh, is a black man in America who uh, is at the core of the criminal justice system every single day. My name is Kizer Khan, by profession. By profession, I'm a lawyer. These days, I speak on behalf of the Constitution of the United States throughout the country. And I am a patriot American Muslim. Thank you. Mr. Khan, I'm going to begin with you. 
because you were thrust into America's conversation about race and identity. And you will notice that I use those terms interchangeably, and we can talk about why in just a minute. Um, when you spoke at the Democratic National Convention so movingly in ways that I think all of us remember, um, deep in our heart we still remember that. And, and as a result of that, you were thrust into the spotlight in a way that some people would have been uncomfortable with, but you took the moment, um, you know, if you, if you follow Hamilton, if you're a Hamilton fanatic, um, you know, you were ready for your moment. And, and, and you decided to step into this conversation and to play a role in this conversation as someone who helps lead the conversation, but also who listens very carefully. You have been traveling the country on something of a listening tour. So if you could just quickly tell us a little bit um, about why you were so comfortable stepping into this role uh, and uh, in honor of your son, in honor of your experience, um, and also what you're hearing as you're on this listening tour. Michelle, my conversation will not be complete unless I pay tribute to our civil rights leaders, my source of strength. Every conversation that I have I apologize if my voice raises, because such are the time that all of us need to raise our voice. I pay tribute to our civil rights leaders that have brought us here, that have brought the race relation to this point. So after paying tribute to them, I met uh, Honorable John Lewis after the convention. We shook hand and I promised him something. And I'm keeping my promise. I wish he was here. I told him that I'll continue to speak up until these stressful times for my nation are over. And that is what I have continued to do. Leaders like yourself, folks that are sitting with me, I am just so humbled and honored. It is the strength from their leadership that I drive and I have continued to speak. This is my 101st appearance in front of this wonderful people here. And uh, I have been to your hometown, Minneapolis, Minnesota, a couple of nights ago, prior to then in Iowa, Texas, Boston, San Francisco, coast to coast, but mostly in heartland of America. I wish to share this observation with you that in Cedar Rapid, half of the hall was packed with veterans of this country, men and women. I asked them, why have you come? And they identified themselves that we are Republicans, we are conservatives, we voted for Trump. But Mr. Khan, we are worried about our health. There was a lady among them with the dialysis machine attached to her. She came to ask me what should I do so that my health care is not mismanaged, changed, what assurance you can give. Then a couple of veterans asked, Mr. Khan, we have heard that we will have no legal services henceforth. The reason is that Trump has not placed, Republicans have not placed 
any funding for the Legal Services Corporation, which provides legal services to the veterans. Among those veterans were women veterans. And I was told that women veterans are the most victim of this lack of legal services because of the violence, because of some challenges obtaining benefits, such as same thing in Dallas, same thing in other parts. My nation is worried, my country is concerned. There is lack of leadership at both ends of the Pennsylvania Avenue. There is lack of moral compass at both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. So you will say, what should we do? We should continue to speak, each and every one within our capacity, stand next to those who are hurting the most. Stand this race relation conversation. I migrated to this country in 1980. I have heard this every time there is a tragic incident. My brother and sisters of African-American community is killed. Then we begin to talk about race relation. This is high time that we bring end to this conversation and we take some step. Those solutions will not come from either end of Pennsylvania Avenue. Those solutions will come right from here. And I'll be more than glad to share additional comments that I have received throughout these conversations. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today's show, The Future Dialogue on Race, features Latina community leader Amy Inahosa, former Boston-based prosecutor Adam Foss, the Aspen Institute's Michelle Norris, and attorney Kizer Khan. Khan is the father of a Muslim-American fallen soldier. His impassioned speech at the 2016 Democratic National Convention gained international attention. Their conversation was part of the Aspen Institute Symposium on the State of Race in America. It was held in early April. Now, back to the discussion. So let's talk about our racial compass right now in the country. How would you characterize the tone of the conversation about race in America right now? What has changed? Who dominates the conversation? And who's left out? There are so many answers to that question. I think who dominates the conversation, maybe it's not a who, it's a what. I think fear dominates our conversation right now. And I think that you have people on different ends of the spectrum. You have um, white America fearful that they are losing something when you see numbers of um, immigrants growing, when you see um, other demographics growing. So there's fear that they're losing something. But then you have fear of communities of color, fear that they're gonna lose even more. Um, And so that's what's dominating the conversation right now. And so everyone's position that's taken, it gets wrapped up in that fear. And one of the really interesting statistics that came out of the the election cycle was that, um, and I believe this was a study out of UC Santa Barbara and Stanford, and they asked um, whites who were thinking about voting for Trump um, what they thought of Um, the statistic that by 2042, um, the country would be minority white. The result of that was they were more inclined to vote for Trump as a result of that statistic. If they heard that statistic. statistic. And so I don't think we have to tell anyone in this audience that anyone who 
was a non-white male heterosexual Christian, that all of the fear that came to our communities at the thought of what would happen during a Trump administration. Um, and so I think what we're leaving out of the conversation right now is where we can empathize with one another and where we can find that common ground. Because we coexist every single day. But somehow we have ratcheted up the conversation to this fevered pitch right now. Um, but we have to decide, and, and not just people of color, but everyone in the country has to decide. And, and it's not lost on me that we're having a conversation on race um, on the 49th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. There was a lot of conversation here in D.C. about whether folks would stay or go um, at, 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 if a Trump administration came in. My answer to that was, if a Trump administration comes in and the things that we are afraid of start to happen, this is where advocates have to stand and fight. This is where we have to decide if we are worthy of the legacy of a Dr. Martin Luther King, of a Cesar Chavez. Are we the ones who are going to take that conversation to the next level because the future will judge us by what we're doing in this moment. But you raise an interesting point about the um, uh, vulnerability of, you know, that, that people face once they're presented with statistics. There's interesting research around this in a number of things. For instance, if you remind a young woman that she is of her gender before she takes a math test, she will perform more poorly on that math test. I mean, the way that we process information and that it leads us to order our steps or our thoughts in particular ways is interesting. But when we have these conversations about race, there is often the presumption that they are by, for, and about people of color. You will notice that there's something missing on the panel right now. We're talking about race and we're all people of color. Um, you know, a white person perhaps should be included in this conversation on the panel. Is that a mistake that we, and I'm using the big royal collective we, often make when we have conversations about race, that we automatically go to a certain part of the contact list or a certain part of the Rolodex? And I know by saying Rolodex, I just totally age myself. <laughs> because the young people in the room don't even know what a Rolodex is anymore. But is that a mistake that we sometimes, that we often make, in presuming that the conversation about race is really about people who have melanin in their skin or more melanin in their skin and that white people are not raced themselves, that they somehow don't check a box or don't have a place in this conversation. Adam? Uh, it certainly is uh, a mistake. We, you can't have a conversation without two parties and a conversation on race is, is one that needs to have all the parties in the room. Uh, I think uh, the fear, again, is uh, I don't want to say something that's offensive. Um, and we don't, we don't make room for each other to do that. The title of, of this symposium is The State of Race in America. Um, like Mr. Khan, I've, I've done you know, 200 talks this year, and a lot of them are at places where we're talking about opportunity and leaders and economic mobility, all white people. And when you have a conversation on the state on race, this is 70% this is people of color in this room, 80%. Um, so how do we change that to make sure that when we talk about race, it's not just a conversation about people of color, that white America, uh, blended America, people of all hues and faith traditions uh, are included in that conversation? I think uh, invite, obviously inviting people in is, is a big part of it. Uh, sometimes we need to go where they're at. The, 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 the magic of the 13th for somebody who, who um, is in criminal justice reform was not, the, was not the content in the movie, it was the distribution. Okay, you're talking about the film produced by Ava DuVernay yes. called The 13th yes. that was available uh, via Netflix and then available for free at some point yes. so it would reach a broader distribution. Um, when you put 
a program like that on Netflix, now you know, parents are watching it in, after the 6 o'clock news, whereas if you tried to put that material out in something that, you know, on a BET or, or black entertainment television or, or in the theaters at, at a small release, you're not getting you're not getting the the buy-in. So sometimes you have to go to where they're at to, to include the to include them in the conversation. How has social media changed the nature of our conversation about race? In some ways, it allows us to reach more people. Um, in other ways, it's it's like a rain of fists. Uh, people will throw all kinds of things out there with the hashtag "just saying." <laughs> yeah. You know, um, has that deepened the conversation? Has it expanded the conversation? Or has it in some way pinched the conversation? I, I would say that um, pinched is a good way of putting it. It, it is in some ways reduced the conversation. Um, to, ha to have an ideological conversation, you need words and you need sentiment. And you don't always get those things from 140 characters. However, it has been the great mobilizer. And so there's a yin and a yang to it. We have to understand how we can use it for good, but at the same time understand where it's defeating us. Because you can scroll through Twitter on any given day and see epithets of every kind more than you've ever seen in your life. It is hard to balance seeing those things, and, but also seeing these are the opportunities where I can be active. We're going to go on protests today, or we're going to start a letter writing campaign, or we're going to do this. We can mobilize. But we have to understand how to use it. And we have to understand how it's impacting students. This is really going to be, we're starting to learn. This is the first generation of students who have been exposed to that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, anytime. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to start to see what those long-term impacts are. Because for my generation, you know, we all shared the phone in the kitchen, right? We didn't have a cell phone that we could access every minute of every day. And so... I think figuring out how to harness it for good, just like anything else, figuring out how to harness it for good, and at the same time, fight back all of the negative things that come as a result. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. If you liked today's show, check out the episode, Race and History. Harvard President Drew Gilpin Faust talks with Brian Stevenson about his organization's efforts to build a new museum. Stevenson directs the Equal Justice Initiative. The museum will examine the legacy of slavery, racial terrorism, segregation, and police violence. Find the show by searching Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes. Now, back to today's conversation. Here's Michelle Norris. I wonder if you can harness it for exploration. I mean, the, I am very cognizant of the fact that the race car project grew over time to the point that we've archived more than 50,000 narratives and have tens of thousands that are in queue waiting to be archived in part because we put the basket on the table at the moment that America was engaged in this big social media conversation or this experiment. So I understand that you can reach people. Uh, and I wonder if you can use this as a way to see other lives if you're willing, if you go into a community, Mr. Khan, for instance, do you go to social media, to Facebook, to Twitter, to Instagram, to try to learn about that community before you arrive in that community? Can you learn something about Cedar Rapids and the people there and the things that are important to them before you ever set foot in Cedar Rapids by actually using social media? Well, I try to do that, but uh, uh, in my recent observation, the concerns, this may not be uh, representative of the Heartland America crowd that comes to such gatherings. Whenever 
I feel that in the front row are the faith leaders, leaders of communities sitting. I can assure you the morale and the race relation is at its best. And that is where lies the solution. So I try to assess who has been invited. I normally ask my host to extend the invitation to other groups, to political groups, to social groups, to faith groups, wherever I notice that the morale of the community and morale of the people in that community is highest, that is a result of joining hands. The reason is that as human beings, we look up to our leaders. And when social media has been used as source of hate speech, these are not my words, these are the word of the judge that refuse to defer because the bigoted speech through the campaign where uh, uh, some participants were thrown out of one of the gathering, they sued Donald Trump and he takes the shelter, he takes the shelter of First Amendment, cowardice. So you're tying and the, the judge and the, the judge told him to the Muslim ban. And the judge told him that this kind of speech that he had been uttering throughout the campaign is not covered under First Amendment, it's hate speech. So when you have leaders exploiting social media like this, of course community will be concerned and worried. And uh, 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 social media is uh, something that dialogue can continue. But the corruption of the social media has been so alarming, so embarrassing for my country, for my nation, by the highest office holder of this country. The rest of the world makes fun of United States, the status that we had maintained to lead the world, lead mankind, be the beacon of hope, now is laughed at just because of the moral compassless clown show taking place in White House. I apologize Tell for us that, how you really but it is yeah, so seriously. true. <laughs> it is so true. I, I want to ask you a, um, a personal question about bringing your whole self to your work, not just as an advocate, not on the road, but you are an attorney. And so in, you know, we talk about how we, how we, we're discussing how we talk about race in the public sphere, but I want to talk a little bit about how we control that conversation in the private sphere, in the, in the, in the world that we embody when we're doing our, our work, when we're with our families. So as an attorney, um, I'm wondering if you felt comfort in talking about race and talking about your identity, in advocating around issues of race and diversity in the places that you've worked, in the firms that you've worked, in the advocacy organizations there. Because one of the things that we know in America that if you want to obtain a position of leadership, if you want to rise to a position of leadership in, in any kind of organization, law firm, corporation, newsroom, museum, one of the fastest ways to get there is to avoid conversations about race. Because to involve yourself in conversations about race means walking through a landmine that might slow your roll. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you felt empowered in that and if you would speak honestly about that even if you didn't. I 
apologize uh, to you, Michelle, but I disagree. Uh, I have spoken then, not as loudly as now. Uh, we have, uh, when we migrated to United States, one of the places that I used to come bring my family, bring Captain Himayun Khan, and our guest was Thomas Jefferson and his monument and inscription on the walls and all that. And then the dilemmas of slave ownership of Jefferson. We spoke that on our dinner table. We spoke with our guests. We do face these dilemmas, but speaking, having conversation within family, within your private uh, uh, gathering, uh, makes you uh, honest and realize in a sense that these conversations can be had. These conversation should be had, must be had. And I implore all of us to continue to have this conversation of race relations, of diversity, why it is necessary. Look, we are way behind rest of the mankind. The mankind is not created in one color, one shape, or one size. We should be an example for the rest of the world. The world, the mankind, strives for leadership, moral, ethical leadership, leadership of equal dignity. Sometimes folks ask, why you carry this Constitution in your pocket? Why do you talk about this? I don't talk about the Constitution just because it is U.S. Constitution. I talk about it because some people call those amendments, I call them human dignities. Each and every member of mankind of today aspires to have those dignities. Some of us are fortunate to have them. Some of other parts of mankind are under authoritarian regimes, rules, dictatorships. They aspire to have these dignities. So we have had these conversations in private, in public. Lately, it had been loud but we will continue to be loud and louder. The reason being louder is that everyone in here, maybe with the exception of one or two, they all are of the same voice. They all are of the same thought and belief that these dignities must be maintained, must be defended today, tomorrow, and time to come. And we will not let anyone push us down, push us back. Thank you. Thank you. Adam, I, I want you to talk a little bit about the experience of talking about race in the workplace. When I asked you to identify yourself, I believe the first thing you said is, I'm a black man in America. A black man in America with dreadlocks, really long dreadlocks. <laughs> um, and so when you want to bring your authentic self to work, I'm wondering if there is an expectation that you will lead the conversation about race or carry the conversation, or when it comes time to talk about race, if everyone turns and looks at Adam. Um, and, if, and if you're comfortable with that, or is there a certain amount of peril in being the person who brings up race, who leads the conversation about race, or who directs an organization to take a good look at hard truths? Uh, so I was a black man, I am a black man in America with dreadlocks working as a prosecutor in Boston. Um, <laughs> like the perfect storm of where you don't want to be. Um, <laughs> And uh, the reason, the reason that it, was, it was such a thing, it wasn't like being a, a lawyer in another office. It's at a place where 
the people who, who most of, of the folks that I worked with saw as your adversary were people of color. And uh, every day, every decision that we're making are impacting those people's lives. And when you don't have the um, empathy or um, the understanding of where these folks are coming from, the, the damage is, is, is great. And so when you try to educate someone, and, and I'll, I'll use that, that term even though that's not what I was doing all the time, um, you can come off as sort of like that guy. You know, like everything was an issue. Um, Looking for race under every rock. And, and, this, and the sad part is it actually had this really deleterious effect. Um, the conversation went away and people uh, used the term colorblind all the time. And I know that you and I had our, our, our moment about, about that word out in Ferguson. Um, but the, the more dangerous thing than the people that we saw during, during the, the campaign and out at these rallies and, and going crazy were the people who uh, stood next to me and said, I don't see color. We don't need to talk about this because I treat everyone the same. So when someone says they're colorblind, what, what, how do you process that? I, what they're trying to say, I know what they're trying to say is, I'm not going to treat you unfairly because of the color of your skin because I don't see it. What I hear is, I don't respect you as much. I can't, I can't in my being respect you as much or see you as an equal unless I don't see the color of your skin. I'm not going to take that part of your being into consideration, even though um, it is a major part of my life experience. Which is why I asked that question at the beginning, because it, it, it really focuses you to, it forces you to focus on that. Yes. And when you uh, see other people who are coming through the criminal justice system, whatever got them there, to say that I don't see their experience as, as black or brown uh, in this country, it, it, it's alarming that those are the people that are making decisions about uh, the criminal justice system and people's liberty. Is there another way of saying that? I, don't, I, I, I see your color, but I'm not going to define you by your color. Is that a, would that be a more acceptable iteration of that? I don't think so. I, you can't divorce the color of our skin, especially in this country. You cannot divorce the color of our skin with our day-to-day -day experience um, because of the history that we have not reconciled, um, because of the history that's being made every day. Uh, I want people to see the color of my skin, just the way that you would want people to see your gender as a person in the, in the world. And I want you quickly, if you can, share with the audience, because when we first met, you shared with me the story of, of the, where the color of your skin made a really big difference on the first day of your job, yes. for instance. Can you just tell us quickly what happened that time? Uh, the first day of my job, I walked into the court, it's the, the, walking into the courtroom and seeing the divide. No, I'm talking about when you um, actually spent the night before you actually showed up. Uh, I don't want to give, I want him to tell the story. Uh, the night before my first interview at the district attorney's office, I was, I was arrested. Um, black man in Boston, I, I actually, there was a car accident, I called the police, I ended up getting arrested. Um, I spent the night in jail, I went to my arraignment, and I went to court, I was still in a suit, I went to my interview for the DA's office the next day, and I asked, when I walked in, I said to them, uh, there's something that you should know. Uh, I was arrested last night, and, and I don't want to waste your time if that's going to be a problem. They said, no, 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 that, that's not a problem. Um, we're wondering whether or not you'd cut your hair for this job. <laughs> yeah, and, to, and to me, it was, it was, it was mind-blowing that uh, the thing that you focused on when I walked into this room was my, my appearance. And I, and I simply said, I wouldn't want to work at a place where you were concerned that somehow my hair was going to impact the quality of my litigation and my, my equity and fairness. Uh, 
So that is the best first day on the job story ever, <laughs> perhaps. And, and we're, we are pushing Adam to write about this, and uh, we think that he should be the star of his own TV show um, based on the stories that he tells. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today's discussion about race features Adam Foss, who co-founded the Prosecutor Integrity Institute, President of MANA, Amy Inahosa, Muslim American activist Kizer Khan, and Michelle Norris. Norris leads a program on race and cultural identity at the Aspen Institute. Here's the rest of their conversation. Do you find that if you take on the conversation about race that you carry some burden or do you see it as an opportunity? So it's interesting. When I was younger, it felt like a burden. It it sort of felt like, well, let's ask Amy. Because I grew up in rural Texas, right? Diverse community. Actually, it was not. Very few Hispanic families, very few African-American families. Um, And so I was in a sea of white, essentially. And, and so, and, and that was okay. I don't feel like I was treated any differently, but if uh, an off-color joke was made, it the always the forever offhand comment was, you know, I don't mean you, right? <laughs> but we're not talking about you, Amy. So it did feel like a burden. So it did feel like when a teacher would try to give, a, you know, license on how to say my name, right? The kid before me, his last name was Henson. I wasn't asking for a teacher to ever say, you know, Hosa, maybe just Hinojosa. That's all right. We can, phonetically, we can do that. So he, they, he would always say Courtney Henson and then Amy Hanahosa. What? Why are you taking license with my name? So it, it felt like a burden because I always felt like I had to speak up. If I don't, he's never going to say my name correctly. Mm-hmm. He's never going to see me as I am and who I am and what my name is. So that... It did feel like a burden, but now it feels like a blessing. Now it's like, and you when know did, what? When did that change? When did you start to, t- start to take power in this as opposed to seeing it as a burden? So I think as uh, probably college, probably when you start to take ownership of who you are as a person, um, when, when you start recognizing that your ethnicity and your background, when you start seeing all those things as strengths, um, so, so this really has to do with ownership of who you are as a person and when that kicks in and stops being a burden. Um, and, and for me, that, that was the time. Then it was like, you know what? I do have this voice and I do have this incredible background. And I do have, I, I, I didn't come from a, um, I'm a firm believer that if, if to those who much is given, much is expected. And so I do feel like I didn't have um, a very negative experience. I had a family and a childhood that were I, that wrapped love and, and acceptance and warmth around me from every angle. So I feel like that is my responsibility to turn around and make sure that every other person feels that same way and that they own who they are and what that identity is. And it shouldn't matter in the United States of America what that identity is. We all come from somewhere else. We can all be better if we all embrace those things and use it and channel it toward the greater good. I want to make sure that we um, include the audience, so I'd like to ask people to start to head to the microphones if you'd like to participate in the conversation. And as they head there, I just want to ask about um, the expectations around race. 
are the conversations, and again, we're here to talk about the state of race, not the state of racism, and it's important that we make a distinction between those two things, because they're very different. But is this part of a self-fulfilling prophecy, and that the conversations around race are stilted, are difficult, are um, uncomfortable, in part because we keep saying that conversations about race are uncomfortable? Do we need to reframe the conversation or admit that it might be uncomfortable, but put a comma or a colon instead of a period there and explain that it might also be enlightening, that you might also learn something about someone else? Do we need to reframe the conversation to make it more productive or expansive? I, I think so just from your first question that you asked me, um, how do we get people involved? I think that that's a great start. Acknowledge that it's going to be uncomfortable, but we're not going to jump down your throat. Um, when you say something that, that we might perceive as, as ignorant. It's, it's going to be uncomfortable, but we got you. We, under, we understand. We, we want to come out of this um, somewhat better off than we are now, and there's no way to do that unless we have a dialogue. Um, so I think, I think that's... And the, the goal may not be agreement. Is that important also? That, the go that I, you don't have to agree that, um, in fact, at the end of this, you might not agree. You, in fact, you might be even further apart from each other, but you know something about someone absolutely. else that you didn't know before, absolutely. and there's power in that. Let's take a question. Thank you, and thank you for the, the panel discussion today. I wanted to pick up on this idea, and I think you just mentioned it also, about empathy, um, because I, when I hear that in the context of talking about white racial anxiety, I, f I feel a little uncomfortable, because I wonder if that's the right direction that we should go in, and how do we really have a conversation that's progressive and moves us somewhere um, about race in this country? Number one, how do we bring in white people into that conversation, and how do we do it in a way that's actually productive, as opposed to kind of massaging that anxiety, which really I don't know if we should should be doing that. Can I ask a follow-up? I can't hear sure. myself. Can I ask a follow-up question? What makes you uncomfortable about the notion of empathy when reaching out to white audience? Because that'll help us. Yeah, inform. sure. I'll tell you why. I mean, because okay, I think answer. black and brown people in this country are dying. I think our situation is is is. Um, very serious, and I don't know if we have time to coddle and to sort of, you know, bring uh, the majority out of this sort of sense that they're losing something. Maybe we should be having a real conversation about what whiteness is, how it works, how it hurts, uh, you know, people of color, and then move from there. But I understand that's maybe a more of an aggressive position, and so you may need to meet people halfway. But I think this election shows that there's a real consequence to not recognizing the power of that anxiety and not recognizing whiteness as a, a race that has a place in the conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I, I would start to, to answer that by saying, and you know, I think in this last election cycle, I don't think any of us got out of it without engaging in some way on social media, right? And, and I've told you a little bit about, about my background. And when I start to have those conversations about um, history and, and what that means and what these institutional racist structures have meant for people of color in the United States. What I often get is that white individuals don't necessarily feel that as, not as their burden, but they don't see that as something that they were part of or that they continue to this day. And so the, the gap there is understanding that history. And, you know, in terms of how do we how do we do that? Wait, we should get uncomfortable. We should revel in that uncomfortable situation, and it should feel weird and awkward. That's the only way you're going to come out on the other side. So if you put it all on the table, and they put it all on the table, and you come away, and maybe you understand where the other person is coming from, that's a whole lot further than you were when you started. And so maybe you're not ever going to agree, and that's okay. But if you respect each other, and you respect what 
perspective someone comes with at the end of the day, right now, that's a big step. Adam? Um, I, I completely feel, where'd you go? I, I completely feel um, the frustration coming from the question uh, because uh, until recently I was standing in courtrooms watching black and brown men getting thrown, in, thrown into jail. And uh, what I wanted to do was scream at the, the other prosecutors on the line um, because they, the way that they spoke about people and the judgments that, that they made. And what I realized um, about, about both parties was the black and brown men that were going into jail and prison were doing so because of the environments that, they're, that they were brought up in. And the, the folks over here who were, who were mostly young white people were doing, th throwing those people in jail because of the environments that they grew up in. And until our, our workforce, our, our hospitals, our schools, our, our um, courtrooms look more representative of the populations that they meet, uh, I don't know that any conversation is going to do it. When I say empathy, I don't, I don't mean sympathy. I mean understand, understand what it is to be so desperate to feed your family that you will hurt someone, that you will steal from someone. That should not be a discredit to my character. That should be uh, a responsibility that we all bear. And that's something that we all need to, to work on and, and fix. When you, when you listen to and you hear about the statistics of people in prison, they're, they're out of control and, and it's, the numbers are crazy and we should be ashamed. But unless it's coming out of Brian Stevenson's mouth, um, the conversation goes away. And until we can get people to, to go to Angola prison and see like real human suffering, real human suffering, um, it's, it's gonna be very difficult to talk this, talk this away. And I would posit that in order, to order that in order to understand the pipeline, you have to go not just to prison, but you have to go to police departments. You have to go to communities. And the word that, because I'm a journalist, and maybe this is the word that I always, that I always embrace or that I, that I reach for when I think about these conversations is not necessarily just empathy, but curiosity. That you have to have real curiosity about someone else's life. Um, not just about someone you know, but most especially someone who you don't know mm -hmm. and someone whose world that you don't understand. And if you are appropriately curious, um, that will help set the, the agenda and frame the conversation. Let's take another question. Sir. Uh, top of the day. My name is Niana Rossiano. I'm a behavioral neuroscientist. I have a simple question. I'm trying to juggle this oxymoron. How is it that we can talk about race without talking about racism, given that white people and black people are political constructs? And I wanted to ask the brother, straight up, how did you feel when they asked you, like, can you just pretty much drop your identity? Because it takes a long time to lock that law, you know? <laughs> to just drop your identity, then come in and litigate and prosecute people on the docket who probably look more like you and more like me, or we, we know a whole bunch of crap. So mm -hmm. that was my, that's my question. Okay, first, let, let's Thanks a lot. Your reaction when you were asked whether you would consider cutting off your dreads, I assume that was an immediate no. Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't bang this out in a few years. Um, my immediate reaction is it's really good that I'm here. Because if, if, if the, the person who is the chief of this unit who's hiring people is asking that question, um, it's, it's really terrifying that, that uh, there are people like this in, in a place where our job is to make decisions about people's liberty and those people never look like us. So was there some benefit in him asking the question? Because by asking the question, he put it on the table. If he didn't ask the question, but like was looking at you side-eyed for the next 10 years, I wish he would have cut his dreads. Can he possibly do his job with those dreads? I, am, I can't possibly see him the way that I see the other attorneys because he has dreads. 
Would that have been difficult and perhaps a harder mountain to scale if he had not just put it on the table and said, I wish you would cut your hair? I think what it did for me was I, it, it was this dirty little game that was going on. It was, um, you're being hired because you are a representative of the community and so we want you to go out and try jury cases. Because our cases that went to a jury were getting not guilty all around because of who are, was in our jury pool. And so when they asked the question, I knew uh, what they were trying to do. I knew that I was going, that they were putting me into the situation so that I would be the guy that they'd put on the really hard cases and, and try those cases to, to a, a verdict. On the other side of that, I knew that I would be able, if, if you're gonna have that piece, I'm gonna have my piece where I'm gonna, I'm gonna prosecute in an entirely different way and uh, one, one out over the other and that, that was me sort of prosecuting with this lens of uh, helping our communities be safer and better and less locking people up. I wanna take this last question but I also wanna to get to the second half of his, his question which is why is it important to separate a conversation about racism and a conversation about race while understanding that racism is the child not the stepchild, but the direct biological child of race. What do you think? <laughs> you know, racism is something that I hope will go away within my lifetime. I know it probably won't. I know it probably won't go away within my child, child's lifetime. But I don't ever want race to go away. Yes. Race is something beautiful, and, and racism is toxic. Race is not. Race describes the, the beautiful tapestry within this room, even though it is a totally man-made construct. It is, it, is, it is a conundrum. It is completely made up, and yet it's very real in practice and consequence. And because of it, we have to deal with that. But it also has been used as this, you know, going back to the 1500s when botanists were trying to figure out how to first describe plants and then eventually categorize people. Um, it's amazing that it's lasted all these, these years and how we um, describe each other, but it also goes to that first question that I ask. It's also part of our identities, and, and, and it comes to race, we actually have a lot more in common, mm. but we focus on the difference. Just a footnote to what you uh, said and what my brother said. Uh, this conversation that is taking place, Aspen deserves to be congratulated yes. for yes, this yes, con conversation. Yes. Particularly Charlie and Kiana for putting and, it together. Uh, the hope, this is hope, and the hope comes, and I have sat, observed, participated in those conversations of race and racism, is the next generation of leadership. The young folks that are sitting here, they are going to take us across the bridge. I have felt, heard in their voices, seen in their gathering, how they have begun to look at race and racism totally differently than my generation or current adult generation. But we should, we should note something, and I'm going to take this last question. Um, we should note something when they cross the bridge. You know, I'm calling this new program at the Aspen Institute that's based on the race card project, the bridge, but not because we're crossing over into some um, state of nirvana. When you cross a bridge, whether you're going to work, whether you're going on, you go over and you come back. Mm -hmm. You go back and forth and back and forth. And and it's important to understand that when we're crossing a bridge, whether it's a cultural bridge, um, whether it is a real bridge, that it's, it, it takes work and it's traveling back and sure. forth and back and forth. And we develop, hopefully when we talk about that racial compass, um, sort of cultural musculature, yeah. you know, so that we can move forward and be better at these conversations. Thank you very much to our panel. 
Mr. Khan, Mr. Foss, Ms. Hinojosa. <laughs> I was not going to say answer. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michelle. Michelle Norris is a former NPR host and now leads a program at the Aspen Institute on Race and Cultural Identity. Adam Foss runs the Prosecutor Integrity Institute. Amy Inahosa is president and CEO of the national Latina organization, MANA, and Kieser Khan spoke at the 2016 Democratic National Convention. Their conversation was part of the State of Race Symposium at the Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.